Well, uh, Pastor Daniel assigned me a topic for this time, and the topic he gave me is unbiblical mysticism. And the theme of the conference is biblical spirituality. So I'm going to deal with the dangers of mysticism, but I'm also going to expand my assignment a little bit and deal with several forms of false spirituality. And that's because my text for this morning is from Paul's epistle to the Colossians, and he wrote that epistle to deal with fake religion that was confusing the church in Colossae. And it was a mixture of mysticism and asceticism with some overtones of Gnosticism and Stoicism and Pharisaical legalism. And so we're going to look at how he dealt with that in Colossians chapter 2. I want to look specifically at verses 20 through 23. And that may strike you as an obscure passage in an out-of-the-way location. These are the closing four verses of Colossians 2. But what this passage does is neatly summarize the point that Paul was making in that chapter. And it's a message that is especially pertinent to us today because we live in a postmodern spiritual wasteland that seems absolutely infatuated with mysticism and asceticism and practically every renegade form of false, hum- false spirituality. So Colossians 2 verses 20 through 23, and here's some context. Paul is writing to the church at Colossae from Rome where he is under house arrest. We know that because in the last verse of Colossians, he tells them, remember my chains. He's literally chained by the ankle, at the ankle, to a Roman soldier who guards him 24-7. I actually own a set of Roman shackles from that era. I bought them one time in my, on a trip to the Middle East, and they are heavy iron cuffs with a very unwieldy chain designed to secure a person's ankle to the guard. Now, I actually thought about bringing my Roman ankle cuffs so you could see them, but they're so bulky and awkward, I didn't want to be dragging them onto the airplane. I, I, don't, think, I don't think TSA would have let me, let me do that. But just know that when Paul says, remember my chains, he's talking about at least seven pounds of iron that kept him fettered to a guard at all times. And so it's obvious from the epistle itself that this is a letter Paul wrote at some time during the two years that are described at the very end of the book of Acts when Luke tells us Paul was kept under house arrest. Acts 28.16 says Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So he's chained to a guard at all times. He uh, He has no privacy. He has no dignity. He has no ability to enjoy any of the normal comforts of life except for the fellow saints who were able to come and visit him because he's in a house and he has to pay the rent on the house. That's the unfair thing. You know, he has to pay for his own imprisonment. And in the last two verses of Acts, Luke writes, Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. So his supporters came to visit him frequently preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, unhindered. And those are the closing words in the book of Acts. And Paul's epistle to the Colossians takes up basically at that point. The last chapter of Colossians is 
full of greetings from other believers who were there to visit Paul. He gives us a list of the people who were with him when he wrote this epistle. He names Tychicus, Onesimus, Luke, Aristarchus, Mark, Epaphras, Justus, and Demas. So it's a room full of visitors. Epaphras and Tychicus and Onesimus. Onesimus, you know, is the slave uh, described in the epistle to Philemon. These three are on their way back to Colossae. They will carry this and a couple of other epistles from Paul when they go. Now, Colossae was a long way from Rome. It was a thousand-mile journey, mostly by sea. The distance from Rome to Colossae as the crow flies is roughly the same as from here to Los Angeles, but uh, it could be an extremely treacherous journey because it was mostly by sea, and you had to sail around the Roman and Greek peninsulas and then land at Ephesus, and then you had to travel another hundred miles inland in order to get to Colossae. And sailing in that era was not a luxury cruise. Remember, Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five that he had been shipwrecked Three times. I wouldn't get on a ship after that with Paul, but three times he'd been shipwrecked. And he says, a night and a day I have spent in the deep, meaning most likely that he spent at least 24 hours floating on a plank of wood or a piece of wreckage after one of those shipwrecks. He was cast into the sea and had to be rescued after 24 hours. Scripture only records one of his three shipwrecks, and the account of that one is harrowing. But anyway, the distance from Rome to Colossae was long and hard, and Paul himself had never met with the Colossian church. This is not one of the churches he founded. That assembly of saints was an indirect result of Paul's missionary work uh, when when he was in Ephesus. And Epaphras apparently had heard the gospel from Paul in Ephesus, and he took the good news back to Colossae, and this church was the fruit of Epaphras' testimony, apparently. And so the fact that the Colossian church existed at all was one of the indirect fruits of Paul's missionary work, and he indicates in chapter 1, verse 4, that he has only heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love which they had for all the saints. And then he also says in the first verse of chapter 2, that they had not seen his face in the flesh. So this is a letter to a church from a renowned apostle whom most of them did not know and had not met personally. They knew of him. They knew about him, certainly from Epaphras, that Paul's words carried the weight of apostolic authority. And Epaphras, who most likely served as pastor as well as founder of the Colossian church, He had traveled to Rome specifically to enlist the Apostle Paul's help in answering some of these looming hazards that were endangering the doctrinal orthodoxy of that fellowship. False teachings had crept in among the Colossians, and they had the seeds of serious error. They were threatening to develop actually into full-blown heresies, and it seems the errors threatening the Colossian church were an odd mixture of early Gnostic ideas and Jewish tradition with a little bit of Eastern mysticism and Greek philosophy all thrown in to kind of sweeten the blend. So it was an eclectic blend of errors, most of them mystical errors, most of them also 
with a dose of asceticism in them. And in fact, Paul addresses at least four strands of potential heresy in this short epistle. There was a strain of Jewish legalism. There were also some strong hints of Gnostic dualism. And underlying that was a lot of superstitious mysticism. And all three of those ideas fostered an over-reliance on one's own efforts to attain a righteous standing. And so among the saints in Colossae, there was a strong tendency to try to exhibit uh, your own self-righteousness, you know, with a display of rigid asceticism. And as I said, this was an eclectic blend of religious ideas, all of them steeped in sub-orthodox, works-oriented, man-centered, self-righteous, pietistic sanctimony. Four different strains combining to make, maybe you call it one monstrous off-ramp onto the broad road that leads to destruction. There are elements of the Judaizing heresy. That's the, the, the demand for physical circumcision. And it's the same heresy Paul deals with in the Galatians, his epistle to the Galatians. It's also the same error that was condemned by the first church council in Acts 15. <clears throat> so this was a this is a common problem that Jewish people would see these Gentile churches and desire to make them more Jewish by imposing on them Old Testament uh, ceremonial law. There was also uh, an echo in Colossae of the error that Paul condemns in the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, where someone was trying to upgrade the gospel by blending it with sophisticated sounding philosophy, the wisdom of this world, which of course is foolishness with God. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 19 and 20. And then, <clears throat> sorry, for good measure to make it all seem super spiritual, they added claims about heavenly visions and strict rules against all kinds of earthly enjoyments. And if you want the technical names for these four strains of error, I'd call them legalism, Gnosticism, mysticism, and stoicism. And it was a blend of all four strains of this kind of heresy. Verse 16 condemns the error of legalism. And in that one sentence, he completely debunks the heresy of the Judaizers. Verse 16, <coughs> he says, Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He's saying all of the ceremonial features of the Old Testament law were symbolic only, and the thing they symbolized was Christ. And since he's here, you don't need to be tied to the symbols anymore. There were other varieties of error that were troubling the Colossian assembly, all clearly alluded to in verse 18, where Paul says that whoever was teaching these things was defrauding the Colossians and threatening to rob them, thank you, of their heresy, uh, of their heavenly, rather, threatening to rob them of their heavenly reward by enticing them to follow man-made teachings, delighting in self-abasement, that's stoicism, and the worship of the angels, that I believe is a, a reference to Stoic asceticism. I'll explain that, why that's true in a minute. And then 
going into detail about visions he has seen, that's mysticism, and being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, that's Gnosticism. <clears throat> so in one sense, hang on a second. <clears throat> I hate when my voice isn't working right. And I don't like to drink when I'm talking either. It's, anyway. So he condemns legalism, stoicism, mysticism, and Gnosticism. And, and of course, Paul's inspired denunciation of those errors would apply to any blend of ideas that is borrowed from those sources. And, and frankly, as I think about it, I can't think of a single heresy that isn't covered by what he says here. It seems evident that whoever was peddling these ideas in Colossae wanted a, re a religion that sounded more sophisticated. They wanted something that was more familiar to people in that culture. So they're trying to contextualize Christianity for the culture they lived in. They wanted something more palatable to secular, wisdom-loving Greeks than just the simple gospel. And whoever these false teachers were, they undoubtedly claimed to be Christians. Heretics always do. And they thought that they were improving. They may have genuinely believed that they were improving on the simplicity of the gospel by adding these beliefs that were more in harmony with what people in that culture were already drawn to. That way of mingling Christian truth with other religious notions has a name. It's called syncretism. And it always results in serious error because you cannot blend the revealed truth of God with the teachings or the commandments of men and come up with anything other than an ideological monstrosity. <clears throat> now, you know already that the Pharisees themselves did this in a very subtle way. They added man-made requirements for ceremonial washings and extra rules for Sabbath observance and, and lots of external and ritualistic embellishments to their observance of the clear commandments of Moses' law. They, they piled their own regulations on top of it, and Jesus condemned them for that in the most emphatic way. Matthew 15, verses 3, 3 through 9, he told them, you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. You've invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, in vain do you worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. So Jesus is telling them, your religion is worthless. No matter how good the Pharisees looked, and no matter how biblical they, they claimed to be, their religion was worthless because, Jesus says, it was a syncretized blend of biblical commandments overlaid with human religiosity. And that's always bad. The result is always a completely man-made religion, and it's therefore utterly worthless. And in fact, Jesus treated the error of the Pharisees, as mild as that might seem to us, he treated it as a, as a damnable heresy. And the same thing was beginning to happen among the Colossian believers. That's why Epaphras had sought Paul's assistance. The religion of some of the people in the Colossian church was trending towards the same kind of pharisaical externalism. They were obsessed with Sabbaths and ceremonies and all the pomp and circumcision that the Pharisees loved so much. And furthermore, because this was a predominantly Gentile region of the empire, 
the push for them to contextualize the gospel for their own culture, they had, they had blended Gnostic ideas and Greek philosophy and Eastern mysticism, all with this heavy dose of Pharisaical-style legalism, and all of that overlaid the gospel in a way that obscured the preeminence and the sufficiency of Christ. It, it ruined the gospel message. And so Paul is writing to correct all of those tendencies, <clears throat> and his strategy is to restore Christ to his rightful place in their hearts and their minds, and also to get their focus off of this world and off of the culture around them and teach them to focus their minds on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And that's where he's going with this, by the way. You'll see. Now, the central truth of this chapter is spelled, in, spelled out clearly for us in verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, which is to say there is no need to embellish the gospel with the wisdom of the Greeks or the tradition of the Jews or the legalism of the Pharisees, but Christ alone is perfectly sufficient. He embodies everything we need for life and godliness. He is literally everything we need because he is, after all, God incarnate. Verse 9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. I should say that louder for the JWs next door, huh? <laughs> and therefore, verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Human philosophy cannot add anything of value to that. And by the way, don't be thrown off by the, the word hidden there. In him are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul is not suggesting that Christianity is like one of the mystery religions where where, you know, the deep truth, the real truth you need to know in order to be spiritually whole is some secret that you have to be initiated into by some enlightened master. But on the contrary, Paul is telling the Colossians they don't need to look anywhere else but to Christ to find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge because Christ is sufficient to meet every spiritual need you have. That's his point. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are contained in Christ, held in him, bound up in his person, not in order to keep them perpetually hidden from view, not hidden in that sense, but in order to, to put them within reach of anyone and everyone who is united with Christ by faith. And in fact, in chapter 3, verse 3, he's going to say to the Colossian believers, you are hidden in Christ as well. For you died, and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. So there's no need to look elsewhere, as if some deeper truth, some truth outside of Scripture or apart from Christ, might be available from the philosophers or the Gnostics or the psychoanalysts or any other source outside of Christ and his word. And again, that's what this whole chapter is about, the absolute sufficiency of Christ. And there are a couple of key expressions here that need to be explained. One is the phrase, the elementary principles of the world. You see that expression in verse 8 and verse 20, and it's defined by the context. He's not talking about earth, air, fire, and water. Those were, the, those were considered the 
chief elements of the world by most people in ancient times, but that doesn't fit the context here. And also, Paul uses that same term twice in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians 4 verse 3, he says, while we were children, we were enslaved under the elemental things of the world. And then in verse 9, he asks the Galatians why they would want to turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things. And in the context of Galatians 4, it's absolutely clear that what he has in mind are the ceremonial features of Moses' law. Those are the elemental or elementary features of, of the law in the same way that, you know, the letters of the alphabet are elementary for us. Those are the first, simplest things that you teach a child, and they are the building blocks for learning more complex things. But once you've mastered the alphabet song, you don't have to sign up for classes where that's what they're teaching, you know? You just retain that truth and move on with it. But the Galatians and their neighbors, the Colossians, refused to leave their coloring books and baby toys behind. They were trying to cling to the Sabbaths and ceremonies of the Old Testament, even though, verse 17, those things were only a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It couldn't be any more clearer. You know, it's like someone who gets a beautifully wrapped birthday present, and he's so enthralled with the package that he, he forgets to open it and find out what's inside. Kids are like that sometimes. When one of my sons was a toddler, we got a chair for his playroom, and it came in a big box, and he didn't care much for the chair, but he played for weeks with the box that it came in. And on a spiritual level, that's what was happening in Colossians. The people were becoming obsessed with Sabbaths and ceremonies, and even though those features of Moses' law were designed to be temporary and symbolic, and they pointed to Christ, even though the Colossians had Christ, who was the very substance of what those things symbolized, their focus was off Christ because they were still obsessed with those things that symbolically represented him. And so Paul tells them, in chapter 2, Christ is all you need. In him, <clears throat> in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 10, in him you have been filled. Verse 11, in him you were already circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. <clears throat> and he goes on, verse 12, in him you were buried and raised again through faith. Verses 13 through 15, in him you were made alive, your sin debt was canceled, the enemy of your soul was defeated and publicly humiliated, and therefore, verse 16, he's saying, stop with this legalistic asceticism and guard the freedom with which Christ has set you free. Verse 16, no one is to judge you in food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. <clears throat> and that is his answer to the Judaizing legalists. And then in verse 18, as we've seen, he likewise dismisses the claims of Stoic, mystical, and Gnostic asceticism. The Stoic ascetic delighted in self-abasement, and because Paul links that to the worship of angels, I'm inclined to think that he may be not talking about offering worship to angels, but rather what he has in mind here is a self-abasing attempt to mimic 
the style of worship that was preferred by the angels, practiced by the angels, you know, where they cover their faces and their feet and they constantly recite the majesty and holiness of God. And these guys were promoting an artificial brand of seraphic ceremony, sanctimony, trying to simulate the pure holiness of the angels. And the problem is we as fallen creatures are not capable of that level of purity. So mimicking the look of it becomes a kind of artificial piety. <clears throat> In fact, <clears throat> sorry, one commentator I read says the apostle here probably has in mind a sect very much like the Essenes who were known for the strictness of their piety. You know, they lived in the desert with no comforts. They spent most of their day reflecting on spiritual things. They abstained from all earthly pleasures and their stated goal was to live the way the angels do here on earth. And that's what I think this refers to. But even if Paul is talking about worship that's offered to angelic beings, it must be the case that whoever was doing this was claiming that they were too weak or too contemptible to approach God directly. And so perhaps they were saying they prayed like Catholics do with Mary, pray and bow to the angels instead because Paul clearly connects the, the worship of angels with the idea of sanctimonious self-abasement. Either way, what he's condemning here is stoic asceticism. And then in verse 18, also, he includes the mystical ascetic in this reproof. The mystic is the guy who goes into detail about visions he has seen. He has God talking to him in his head. Like so many people today, not just charismatics either, but a lot of Southern Baptists are this way. And, and he, he uh, condemns that here. And he likewise takes a poke at Gnostic asceticism. This is the person who claims to be privy to some secret knowledge. But Paul says he's just puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, which is an accurate description of the spirit of Gnosticism. The Gnostic is saying, I know some secret truth that most people don't get. That's the gist of Gnosticism, and it's an arrogant, supercilious brand of religiosity, and the person who thinks that he's been specially enlightened with regard to some secret knowledge is, as the ESV translates it, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. In other words, no matter how strict his brand of asceticism might be, his, his display of self-denial, what underlies it is pure carnality. Gnostics tend to be just like the Pharisees and every other brand of mystical ascetics. They wear the badges of their piety on their sleeves. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And so all of these errors fail, Paul says, and although all of them promise to catapult their followers to a higher plane of sanctification, they actually halt spiritual growth because they all move the believer's focus away from where it properly belongs, namely fixed singularly on Christ, and they direct the person's energies and efforts and attention to something that has nothing whatsoever to do with the doctrines and commandments of Christ. And verse 19, those who embrace these errors are not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, 
from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. In other words, spiritual growth simply does not occur when people turn away from Christ to other kinds of religious expression. Now, the other things that had, when he says other things, the the things that had captured the attention of the uh, Colossians all really boil down to one thing, and it's this mystical asceticism. Uh, It's a severe austerity or self-abasement. If you want a definition, asceticism is a rigorous but artificial, pious self-deprivation that is practiced for religious reasons. And asceticism of every variety, legalistic asceticism, stoic asceticism, mystical asceticism, and Gnostic asceticism, all four of these are unnecessary distractions from the pure and simple gospel of Christ, who deserves first place in everything, he's saying over and over again in Colossians, but especially Christ deserves first place in his church and among his people. And moreover, if you have Christ, you don't need anything else because verse 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily and in him you have been filled. So if you have Christ, why would you try to find some sanctification or satisfaction in a religion that you have devised for yourself? If Christ's work on your behalf isn't enough to save you, then give it up. But if it is enough to save you, why would you add the burden of extra rules and supplementary works of your own? That's what Paul is saying. He wants them to see the absolute sufficiency of Christ. So that's an introduction, a long introduction, and my time is all but 10 minutes gone. So so I'll hurry here. But I know these are things you've probably heard many times, but to paraphrase what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 1, these are truths I don't mind repeating because I love them, and it's good for all of us to hear them again. But now we come to our passage, verse 20. <clears throat> and Paul is going to sum up the point that he's made in this chapter by challenging them to think it through in the simplest possible terms, and then beginning in chapter 3, he'll give them the remedy for the spiritual dilemma that they have created for themselves by listening to these false doctrines. So here's our text, verses 20 through 23. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which are matters having to be sure a word of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. And right there, he sums up the problem with every strain of heresy that has ever assaulted the church. It was this mess in Colossae especially was a web of bad influences and the fruit was an utter corruption of the gospel in at its very heart the gospel message is that God alone saves and Christ alone is savior and he saves by grace alone through faith alone and notice that formula by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and the word alone in each case, is speaking of sufficiency. 
But these corrupting influences all effectively removed that word alone from the formula and the various flavors of asceticism Paul is addressing here, they were de facto denials of the sufficiency of God's grace and the sufficiency of saving truth. And the worst of all, denials of the sufficiency of Christ. And Paul has three observations about the nature of these errors. First, he's saying, if your religion is defined by what you do or don't do, and you live your whole life, verse 20, as if you were living in the world, in other words, you're living as though you still belong to the world, then you don't believe God's grace is really sufficient. And second, if your spiritual standing is, you think it's determined by your obedience to a list of demands and restrictions, verse 21, do not handle nor taste nor touch, then in your mind, faith alone is not the sole and sufficient instrument of your justification. And third, if you believe you're still bound to the ceremonial statutes of the Old Covenant, verse 20, the elementary principles of the world, these things that were merely precursors to Christ, but you think you're duty-bound to observe those signs and symbols, then you don't really believe in the total sufficiency of Christ. And furthermore, if you're still living, verse 22, in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, then you don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture either. In other words, this type of ascetic mysticism is really a practical denial of sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, and sola scriptura. Paul wasn't, of course, defending the, <clears throat> the Protestant Reformation here, but he was laying the foundation for it. So don't call yourself reformed if you're practicing any of these brands of ascetic mysticism. And also, in these four verses that we're concerned with, the apostle gives three reasons why this style of asceticism is a corruption of the gospel. First, he points out that unlike the gospel, which in every regard is totally Christ-centered, ascetic religion is, by definition, works-oriented. It's all about what you do and don't do. Second, the gospel is entirely God's work. The working out of our salvation is entirely subject to God's will, And the fruit of the gospel is eternal, but by contrast, ascetic religion is worldly, and along with the elementary principles of the world, asceticism is destined to perish with use, verse 22. And third, the gospel announces Christ's victory, that it's already complete. Through Christ, God has already accomplished his plan and guaranteed its eternal success because, verse 15, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in Christ. Past tense, all of it. That's all accomplished. And by contrast, ascetic religion is worthless. It doesn't accomplish anything, and it's simply trying to do something that Christ has already done for us. In other words, all of the errors that were being spread in the Colossian church were works-oriented, worldly, and worthless. And so Paul's entire criticism of these errors can be neatly summarized in those three alliterated points. So let's consider them one at a time. If you're taking notes, notes, here's point one. Asceticism is works-oriented. 
These are vital verses. In one simple statement, Paul rejects those who want to impose the ceremonial statutes from the Mosaic Covenant, including all the dietary laws, the ceremonial aspects of Sabbath observance, and basically all the showy elements of ceremony and sacerdotalism that the Pharisees were so enamored with. I use that word in my Sunday school class not long ago, and about 15 people asked me, what does that mean? Sacerdotalism. That's religion that has to be moderated by priests and ceremonies. That sort of showy stuff. That's what they were going for. And Paul is making the point that meritorious works, including religious works, play no part in the gospel of Christ. Someone in Colossae was promoting the same error that Paul addresses in the book of Galatians, telling Gentiles that they couldn't be saved unless they observed all of the ceremonial and dietary statutes of the Old Covenant. And Paul is simply echoing the teaching of Christ here to impose any laws, any laws about ceremonial cleanness or the Old Testament dietary restrictions, that would be contrary to the teaching of Christ because Mark 7:15, Jesus said there's nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. Now think about that statement. That would be hard for anyone steeped in Mosaic law to receive because the law was full of ordinances about ceremonial defilement. Numbers 19.11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And getting rid of that uncleanness, <clears throat> that required ceremonial cleansing twice, once on the third day and then again on the seventh day. Numbers 19.12, if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches, this is verse 13, anyone who touches a corpse the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself makes the tabernacle of Yahweh unclean and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not splashed on him. He shall be unclean and his uncleanness is still on him. And so it was an ordeal if you were defiled and there were lots of things that could defile you, including the eating of unclean foods. So when Jesus comes along and says, to a Jewish audience, there's nothing outside the man that can defile him. The disciples, even, were understandably confused by that. Jesus' answer is significant. He says this, Mark 7, 18, Are you lacking understanding in this way as well? And do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart? So he's talking about spiritual defilement here. What you eat cannot defile you spiritually because it doesn't go into your heart, but he says into his stomach and then goes into the sewer, which is interesting imagery, isn't it? And then Mark, the gospel writer, adds this inspired commentary on that comment. Mark says, thus he declared all foods clean. In other words, all of the dietary laws were instantly abrogated because this is God speaking. He declared all foods clean. Those dietary restrictions were ceremonial in the first place. As Paul says in our text, those rules deal with everything destined to perish with use. So they were never more than temporary precepts designed to teach us a lesson about the absolute holiness of God. And since Christ himself 
abolished the dietary restrictions that Israel had lived by under the old covenant, it is arrogant folly for Christians to make new rules and think that you're honoring Christ by doing that. But what those, or even to force other people, tell other people that they need to obey the old rules that Christ abrogated. That's, that's wrong. It's error. And what those rules did was establish a works-based religion. If you try to impose them on top of Christianity, rules like that are inherently and definitionally self-righteous because they're not expressions of the righteousness of God. And although they are supposed to appear super spiritual, they're actually expressions of self-will, not expressions of the will of God. And that's why we should never impose on any other, on any other person a spiritual rule that is not expressly taught in Scripture. We're not to go beyond what is written. That's 1 Corinthians 4, 6. And if you want a rule to live by, that's a good one. Don't go beyond what's written. It's biblical. It's, a work, it's not a work to be done. It's a, a truth to be lived by and received by faith. It's the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Don't go beyond what's written. And Paul uses an interesting word to speak of these legalistic lists of do's and don'ts. In the Legacy Standard Bible, which is what I've been using, it's translated decrees, end of verse 20. Why do you submit yourself to decrees? The Greek word is dogmatizo, dogmas, human decrees, extra-biblical regulations, ascetic lists of do's and don'ts. Verse 21, do not handle, nor taste, nor touch. These are legal works whose aim supposedly is to gain righteousness and thereby to add something of merit to the perfect righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us. And Paul's point here is that asceticism is inherently works-based legalism, and there was hardly any flavor of heresy that Paul hated most more. So I have two more points and no time to give them to you. Number two is asceticism is worldly, and number three is asceticism is worthless. I uh, Let me just... Let me sum up here. I think it's obvious that the moral unraveling that we're living through postmodern culture in the Western world has been accelerated by the political system and the course of American politics definitely reflects society's movement away from biblical moral values. But the underlying problem is not merely political. And there isn't any legislative or political overhaul that can fix what's wrong. The problem is spiritual. And what the church needs to do is get back to proclaiming God's word with authority and conviction. And don't go beyond what's written. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And our culture is in a moral freefall because all but a small remnant of people in the culture have regenerate hearts. And no amount of legislation can change that. No amount of rules about do's and don'ts can change that. And in fact, as Galatians 2.21 says, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. The worst possible thing the Church of Jesus Christ could do is to become more works-oriented, earthly-minded, trusting in human might and human works and human power and opinion polls and political clouts and things like that that are destined to perish. 
as if we could harness the political machinery of this world to force God's will on, to be done on earth as it is in heaven, that doesn't happen because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Instead, our duty as the people of God is to bring heaven to earth by making disciples. And that involves going into all the world and preaching the gospel. And Luke 24, 47 tells us explicitly what that entails. Namely, it's a message about the repentance, about repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul makes this very explicit as he starts Colossians 3. This is the point he's been coming to. This is, the, this is where he wants to point the Colossians to cure their flirtations with all these heresies. We've been looking at the end of Colossians 2. Just look at the start of Colossians 3 and I'll close. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That's clear, isn't it? It's a good and righteous thing to be heavenly minded. I hear people say sometimes that he's too heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. I hate that saying because I think it goes against so much of what scripture says. We are supposed to be heavenly minded. False religion and bad doctrine and human arrogance and fleshly lusts all will team up to attack or belittle the idea of heavenly mindedness. And conversely, Keeping your heart fixed on heaven, that is a powerful remedy for wayward spirituality, for false mysticism. I've got it. Paul prescribes it here as the answer to all four of these errors that were attacking the Colossian church. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. That's the best way to ensure that your faith is not a false religion. Let's pray. Lord, focus our hearts and minds and all of our strongest desires on things above where Christ is seated at your right hand. And teach us to be pure-minded and heavenly-minded, Christ-like in all of our thoughts and ambitions, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.